This is an ABC podcast. I'm Jonathan Green. This is Lost and Found. And this week, brutality. Elizabeth Farrelly is a writer and architecture critic. Elizabeth, we're going to look at uh, some some fine Australian examples of, of the brutal, but let, let's begin with a little bit of an examination of, of what that movement is attempting to achieve. Yeah, look, I think it's important to remember with brutalism that it's not just about buildings that are considered to be brutal. In fact, you know, the term came from beton brew, which was Corbusier's term for simply raw concrete. But really what the, what I think the style was trying to do, and the reason I find it so interesting, is, is it wasn't just using raw concrete. It was really trying to do something quite noble and intensely optimistic, I think, which mm. was to demonstrate the importance of honesty and of confidence and also in aesthetic terms to uh, always to contrast the very solid and the very heavy and if you like the brutal with the very fine and light and sublime so you get rough contrasted with smooth and solid contrasted with transparent and dark contrasted with light all the time so that play is really important in the style take us to a, a prominent local example my favourite, I have three favourite brutalist buildings in Australia. Sadly, one of them's been demolished. <laughs> um, <laughs> this can happen. This one was the state office block, as it was known, uh, designed by Ken Woolley when he was working for the government architect in the 1960s, early 60s. And it was a very fine building. It was one of the early tower buildings in Sydney, right on the corner of Bent and Macquarie Streets, so kind of diagonally opposite the Mitchell Reading Room. And it's a very elegant and controlled use of materials that had bronze-clad columns and beautiful use of concrete, of, of rough concrete Corbusian stair in the foyer. I remember distinctly, it was demolished in 97, so a long time ago, and the foyer was had this beautiful soft light and this winding Corbusian stair that sort of fell into the open foyer space. It was very transparent around the edges and very conscious of being both open to the public but also defined in a way that would make the public feel comfortable walking through instead of just a sort of loose, oh, well, anything can happen here space. It was mm. really uh, like a little piece of a city and I think it was very clever. It is an exquisite morning uh, here in the Royal Botanic Gardens, Melbourne, where I, where I meet its director, Tim Entwistle. Good morning, Jonathan. And we, are, we have a mission. Amidst all this beauty, we're looking for brutality. Well, it's not what we normally think, is it? We think of plants as being beautiful and attractive and a, a botanic garden as a place to see that, that wonderful variety of plants. But if we look over here, perhaps to my right, there's a, a palm in front of us called a Chilean wine palm. And the mm. Chilean wine palm... Charles Darwin described as a, a hideous, ugly tree, and but I, I think it's He's so cruel. <laughs> but if you look at that trunk, it's it's almost a concrete colour actually. But it's yes. quite a brutal look about it. It's solid, chunky, and too fat down the bottom. It has an air of elephant leg about it. It does. And if we, <laughs> but if you turn over to the left here, we've got a tree. Let's just walk a bit okay, along here. Yeah, yeah. But this this here is called a coral tree. Oh, this is what's what's that tree in? Um 
could be the Whomping Willow. You're one. trying. Yes, yes. No, look, exactly. This is. People think this looks very like the Whomping Willow in the uh, the ha uh, Harry Potter series or Harry Potter fame, but it's pollarded. So when it's in winter, when all these branches are taken off, it's been described as sort of hideous and sinister. And you'd have to say the Whomping Willow is a fairly brutal. Fame. So pollarded is when, when you take those limbs back to the knuckle. You do, and they get all warty and yeah. fat. So the the actual tree gets this really odd shape that some people hate. That's really. a brutal technique and it creates a fairly brutal tree. Yeah, and, and look, we, so we can do that to trees, we can make them look a little bit brutal. I often think that things like conifer hedges and those big, oh, yeah. uh, I suppose, the, the Leyland cypress hedges are quite big, bold and, and fairly brutal in their look. And in fact, you know, if I, if I talk to botanists and, and gardeners around here, it's often conifers that come to mind when we think of a, a, a brutal or, or a sort of a tree that doesn't have, it doesn't have flowers very much, it's just a kind of a bold form. Oliver Wainwright is architecture critic for The Guardian. Oliver, it's, it's fair to say that, that brutalism, that, that concrete is having a bit of a moment. It certainly is. I mean, if you go on Instagram, you'll find probably several hundred accounts dedicated to concrete worship and the beauty of brutalism. It's, yeah, become very much in vogue over the last five, ten years, I would say. What, what a strange thing it is, though, that the, the very features of these big concrete blocks that once sort of repelled people are the same things that make them so intensely attractive. How, how have we shifted our sort of aesthetic sense? I think it's partly to do with the kind of political associations of concrete. I think particularly in the UK, you know, it, it was the material of the welfare state. So in, in the days when we built thousands of, of council houses every year, you know, they were built of concrete. They were brutalist structures, very kind of raw and bold and, and muscular. And, and given the kind of neoliberal system that we have at the moment and the fact that the cities have been entirely taken over by developers, I think people really celebrate that era through the material. Mm. So these estates by architects like Neve Brown and Erno Goldfinger, um, the Barbican estates, you know, these kind of monuments to that 1960s and 70s form of brutalist architecture. I think a lot of it is because of what it symbolises, you know, a time when the public sector actually built stuff and, and was you know, there's a generosity about it. Can we pinpoint a moment of the, when this revival began? I would say it's the 90s, actually. Um, so I mean, a lot of people do credit it to social media and Instagram, but I would say it's, it's way before. And I think it was a total backlash against postmodernism that, that throughout the 80s, architecture had become you know, clothed in fancy dress. It was all about surface and image and a slight kind of flimsiness. And and the ensuing backlash in the 90s was all about going back to, to kind of primal, primitive, essential elements. So people really reveled in kind of raw materials that were unfinished, uncoated, whether it was raw timber, concrete that, that still had its wooden boardmark shuttering imprint. And, and a lot of this came out of Switzerland. So, so in the hmm. 90s, you know the, the beginnings of practices like Herzog and de Meuron, uh, Peter Zumptor, Valeria Olgiati. You know that they were each kind of trying harder than each other to do the most primal form of concrete structure. I mean, Peter, Peter Zumpter famously built a kind of pyramid out of tree trunks in a field and then 
cast it with concrete and burnt out the wood from inside. And it's, it's one of the most kind of primitive <laughs> elemental forms of concrete architecture you can imagine. And that, to me, that's the thing that architects hold up as the, the kind of ultimate dream. Um, it's sort of you know, nostalgic, yeah. and yet it's so many of those structures are in, in fairly ordinary repair. It's for all its mm. for all its great uh, great pleasure, <laughs> its objects that it's not necessarily a, a material that ages very well. No, it's true actually, and it also hasn't been looked after. I think that's um, the thing a lot of kind of brutalist fans argue. They say, well, it's not the concrete's fault. It's <laughs> that the the maintenance regime on these social housing blocks wasn't good enough. And and there's a partial truth in that, but I think, to be honest, a lot of the original workmanship wasn't good enough. You you know, when we were building so many of these prefabricated concrete blocks, the quality often, you know, the, the concrete wasn't thick enough. So the steel reinforcement bar was too close to the surface, which meant that if there was the smallest crack, water would get in, the structure would rust and the concrete would, would flake off. And that's happened again and again, which is often the reason that these buildings are demolished. They weren't actually built well enough in the first place. So, I mean, I think done done well, it, it does last for an incredibly long time, you know, the same as a kind of stone castle from the 10th century, potentially, <laughs> but of, often it's, uh, it hasn't hasn't been done as well as it should have been. And again, just despite its sort of current vaguely nostalgic popularity, is, is there a lot being done in that, you know, tough, brutalist style in, in concrete now? Is it is it having that sort of no. contemporary... And actually, not really. It's interesting. It's it's being it's revived, you know, very much kind of visually, I suppose, mm. on on social media and, and people kind of praising existing buildings. But the reason it's it's kind of out of fashion in use is because of our environmental the, the fact that we've become aware of of the kind of environmental cost of concrete. So particularly, there's a thing called thermal bridging, which means um, if you have the same material running through from outside to inside in a cold climate i guess it's something that maybe australia doesn't have problems with but in in the uk or, or most of europe it would mean the cold temperature from outside would come in so you lose all of your internal heat and, and that's something that a lot of these brutalist buildings have problems with which is why these days it's very rare that you actually find exposed concrete on on the outside of a building so it's usually clad in contemporary architecture what we are seeing more of is exposed concrete on the inside because that doesn't have mm. the thermal bridging issue and a lot of people argue that it's actually environmentally positive because it, it's thermal mass so the sunshine warms up the exposed concrete during the day and then it kind of gives off heat during the night. So, yeah, exposed concrete on the inside is, is something a lot of people are doing now. See, I would, I would have thought that a, a frigid interior would have been a, a, a sought-after consequence of brutalism. This would have been all of a, all of a piece. <laughs> and it's interesting, actually, now, you know, I think the, the, the environmental cost of concrete is really being felt. A couple of months ago, there was a report that came out revealing that I think cement production accounts for 8% of, of all global CO2 emissions. And I think concrete makes up about a quarter of all landfill. So, you know, it's an incredibly damaging material environmentally, which I think mm. is why maybe from now on people are trying to move away from it as much as they can. Oliver Wainwright. Elizabeth Farrelly. 
my second favourite Brutalist building is actually the Queensland Art Gallery in Brisbane, designed by Robin Gibson in uh, 1973, but not completed until 1982 because the brief kept changing. Um, Robin Gibson was one of those modernist architects who, towards the end of his life, went out of fashion, but nevertheless, very, very fine designer. It's a good example of how raw concrete was used in a very elegant compositional frame, playing with a sort of asymmetrical ideas of composition, but quite formal at the same time. And so it, it gives the building a very strong presence on the riverbank and sort of says, we are here for all time. You know, Brisbane is no fly-by-night city. This is here forever. And we have great works of art and we believe in that art. And so in the in the interior of the building, you get this wonderful series of galleries and courtyards. And in the courtyards are pools. So you have vertical slabs of concrete and then horizontal slabs of water and in between translucent pieces of glass. And it's just very, very elegant cubist, really, composition in concrete and light and water. that we're heading towards a very nasty plant. It is. It's, a, it's an Australian plant, but it grows in rainforests in Queensland and New South Wales, but it's one you should not touch, Jonathan, so don't go anywhere near this one. All right. Okay, so in this huge tree in front of us here is called the giant stinging tree. Oh, what a giveaway. <laughs> yes, I know, I know. <laughs> Look, Dendrocnide is the, the botanical name, but this is a particularly nasty tree. It's actually related to the stinging nettle. It's in the same family as the stinging nettle, and you know that the, the sensation you get from that. Mm. If you touch a leaf of this, the sensation you get, it's been described as uh, being attacked by wasps. It's been described as having your leg on fire if you rub one up against your leg. Wow. And it can last for three months. And smaller animals have been known to die from the pain of it. So this is this is very yeah. simple, like one of those and nasty jellyfish. It's a serious tree. It's a good sort of 25 metre tree. And, and the leaves are a big disc, aren't they? Oh, it's, it's, it's almost like a big hibiscus or something, yeah. a soft leaf. It grows in the rainforest. There's, there's a few different species. And one of them's actually called the gimpy gimpy. And they are very, very irritating, if you like. And the, the, little, the poison that comes out of it is in a little vial or sort of ample, if you like, made of silica. So it's like a glass, wow. tiny, pointy needle on the leaves. It's one of those plants that I suppose is hiding there in the Australian bush. That's, yes. that's quite nasty and brutal. That is That definitely fits my definition of a brutal now, plant. There's, a, there's another one here which I want oh, to show you as back well. Back through the undergrowth. <laughs> brutal to other... other species and if we go back this way this one catches birds in fact Not it's common brutal but mean <laughs> well it's common name is the is the bird catcher tree so here we are so lovely big green leaf you'll you'll find it all through the gardens and if you look down in here now they're not quite sticky you can touch these now and you oh, won't okay. get caught so don't don't panic but oh they get i can very, see how that's going to get quite sticky sticky and birds carry the seeds so it's sticky so the birds will carry it so those are the seeds yeah well, they, it's a fruit and there'll be seeds inside there yep. and the idea is that normally a, they'd stick to a bird and they would carry them away but this has become so uh, good at what it does in fact catches the birds 
that will then get stuck in the tree. Because there's dog. quite a bit of fruit around that little stem. There's uh, little fingered pods, like, like a tiny little vanilla pod sort of shape. Yeah, you quite, that's right, like, like a vanilla pod. They're, they're long and narrow. They get very, very sticky. A tree will get stuck in there in the rainforest. Right. They used to think that they caught those birds so that they might drop to the ground and then rot. Fertilise the tree. And fertilise the tree. It turns out it'd be much better if the birds sat on the tree and just pooped on the ground and they would get more nutrients that way. Well, then they keep doing it, you And they would keep doing exactly. So, look, the, the, the people think these days it just got really good at what it was doing. So, it normally just carry, you know, the bird carries the fruit away, but it catches the bird. It's an evolutionary marvel. Yeah, and look, there are, there are a whole lot of plants like that. In fact, there's one called a, a sheep-catching puya, which is a bromelia. Now, I can't show you that here in the gardens, but... I'm, I'm almost reassured. It's so, <laughs> it's so prickly, the farmers will remove them. This is in Chile, and the farmers will go out and remove it because the sheep will get caught, its wool gets caught on the, the leaves, and they will again die and uh, rot near the plant. The sheep-catching puya is a thought to conjure with. Guy Curlemans is a lecturer in art and design at the University of New South Wales. Guy, a key question. What exactly is concrete? Concrete is a pretty amazing building material that is developed from the cooking of limestone mixed with a pozzolanic material, which is traditionally volcanic clay, but recently is uh, more commonly fly ash, which is a byproduct of the coal industry. And we've been making this stuff for a while. Yeah, in fact, 8,000 years maybe, and, and there's some evidence to suggest that it predates ceramic and metal technologies. Wow. It is an extraordinarily durable substance. I mean, we have ancient structures still extant, mm -hmm. which are made from concrete. That's the potential for durability, but that's not how we use it in contemporary life. Well, let's go to that because... I mean, we, we yes, we we're in, live in a, a temporary time, and <laughs> <laughs> concrete is a part of that. Yeah, right. So the biggest problem, I think, with um, the contemporary use of concrete is that we put steel into it. Um, this is uh, steel reinforced concrete, aka rebar, sort of a, a development of the 19th century invented by a, a French uh, inventor and aggressively promoted by the building industries in the 20th century, famously used by early modernist architects such as Frank Lloyd Wright and now the most ubiquitous um, hybrid building material in use on the planet, inherently obsolescent. The condition of steel is that it unalterably will rust. Mm -hmm. um, and when you bury it inside concrete, you can't maintain or uh, clean off that rust. And the, the steel will rust and then expand uh, up to four times its size, cracking open the concrete from the inside. Okay. I, I imagine and this would be common amongst people listening to this, that they would assume that the steel is there to give that concrete strength. Well, it does. And, and this is why you can have these fantastic kind of modern buildings with, you know, cantilevered roofs and a lot of less material than you would if you didn't have the reinforcement there. But the problem is, is that strength is only temporary. And look, to be fair, you know, we're talking about decades here, not years necessarily. And in a really good, well-designed steel reinforced building, it could last 100 or 200 years or perhaps mm. even longer in the case of things like dams. But my position on this is, is that long enough? I mean, we have structures from the ancient world that are in fantastic condition, 2,000 years old. The, the, the Pantheon in Rome is a fantastic example of an ancient concrete structure that's in 
in wonderful condition. None of our buildings that we're building in the 20th and 21st century are going to last like that. And that's a tremendous waste, particularly in the context of climate change and global warming. Because of that, that steel content, that is um, an extraordinary thing because it's a thing we put in there to give them, yes, that, that strength. And yet with that strength comes their inherent weakness. I think the problem is that the building industry doesn't acknowledge this. Mm. Um, there are options, right? Like no one's saying let's stop using concrete altogether and no one's really saying let's only use concrete without reinforcement, although that is a viable option. The real issue is that there should be alternatives to steel reinforcement. Um, there are potential technologies that can replace steel. Bamboo is one. Perhaps one of the most uh, fib uh, composite fibre is another, and that's actually maybe starting to be used a little bit more. But perhaps the most interesting one is actually engineered basalt, which is a different kind of rock. But the, And the concrete industry earns so much money. I mean, it is so big. Uh, I mean, it is a multi, multi-billion dollar industry. They should be investing more into research and development. We assume, I imagine, uh, once a, a building is, is constructed from that concrete, whether in slabs or poured with its reinforcement, that it's then becomes a stable and, and inert mass. But that's far from the far from the truth. No, I mean it's a really you know active material still, and concrete too. You know, it 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 always has cracks. It has micro fissures from the beginning, and those fissures change and develop as the building shifts you know slightly through its life and as the steel expands too the cracks just get bigger which kind of speeds up the concrete cancer internal rusting process we look at concrete and see it as like this stone-like material it's inert monolithic durable but it's not really the case and even if you look at where how concrete is you know developed within the earth um, we can understand its vibrancy i mean it's it's actually made from living matter right like limestone is the you know sedimented composition of dead sea creatures that have aggregated together over hundreds of thousands of years you know like so limestone and this concrete is built on the the lives and sufferings of billions of animals and w if we think about that in a kind of long-term time frame we should be able to adjust our thinking about what kind of structures we should produce from that guy thank you so much no worries dr guy curlemans Elizabeth Farrelly. The third building that I love most out of all uh, Australia's brutalist buildings is the High Court of Australia, which was designed in 1973 as a result of a competition by Chris Kringus, who was a director of EMTB, as it's now known, Edwards, Madigan, Torzillo and Briggs. He uh, won the competition. It was The building's often ascribed to Cole Madigan, who took over because Chris Kringers died tragically about a month before the building went on site. But it was built faithfully to his design. And I love it because it, again, it has that confidence of the era. It's a very sophisticated composition. It sort of says, this is the high court. This is, in some ways, the most important building. So it sits, when you see it from across the lake, it sits sort of symmetrically with the National Library. And between them is Parliament House, which to my mind is the weakest of the three. The National Library is a very strong classical composition, uh, modern classical, and the high court is a very strong brutalist composition. And, it's, and because it has that great lofty, 
public space, which occupies about the ground three or four floors, and these enormous ceremonial courtrooms, which were designed to give a sense of the importance of this institution as as a recognition of the rule of law in Australia. And this is its high point, and this is where the seven judges will sit in a row and they will make judgments. It's not this one of those mean, cramped little courtrooms. It's this great, grand space, which is designed really as a complement to the people of Australia. And it, again, it plays with light and transparency and the fall of that light on the concrete and also the water out the front of the building. And, and I, again, I think it's intensely beautiful and should be recognised as such. You've been listening to Lost and Found, a Blueprint for Living production this week on Brutality. You heard from Oliver Wainwright, architecture critic for The Guardian, Dr Guy Curlemans, lecturer in art and design at the University of New South Wales, Elizabeth Farrelly, writer and architecture critic, and Tim Entwistle, director of the Royal Botanic Gardens, Victoria. Producers are Mira Adler-Gillies and Buffy Gorilla, technical production by Matthew Crawford. I'm Jonathan Green. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.